hey, Papa, guess what? What? I need new clothes. Baby needs new clothes. Where do you think we could go find some cool designs to, from to wear? Oh, I think I have an idea. I mean, we've got some awesome designs for people to wear. Oh, I didn't think about that. You go over to our website. What is that one again? It's um, tpublic.com slash foster care nation. Yeah, I think we got t-shirts and tank tops and hoodies and sweatshirts and baby onesies. They don't have any dad size onesies there, do they? Mm, I don't think so. But the baby onesies are super adorable. Yeah, they are. They even got some kids hoodies and and short sleeve t-shirts, long sleeve t-shirts. Maybe we should go over there and check it out. Where is that again? It's over at T-Public, right? Yeah. Foster Care Nation? Yeah. T-E-E-Public.com slash Foster Care Nation. You can forget a lot of things, Foster Care Nation, but never forget this. You're listening to Unparalleled Studios. I should know. Foster Care Nation, listen up. This is Foster Care and Unparalleled Journey. Strength for the powerless. Courage for the fearful. Hope and healing for wounded hearts. Hello and welcome back to Foster Care and Unparalleled Journey with Jason and Amanda. We actually got her here today, guys. If you've been listening to the show for long, you know that our life has been stupid busy here lately, and it's about to get that way again by, what, another 15 minutes it'll get that way, I'm pretty certain. Yeah. (laughs) But Amanda made it here today. We had no extra appointments, so we are excited to bring her back in here with us. And today we're going to talk with Shannon Weatherly. Shannon, can you tell us a little bit about your story and how you're involved with foster care, adoption, this whole world over here? So I started um, my journey with foster care, um, uh, a field that I still love to this day, even though I haven't worked in it in many, many years um, as a young person. So when I was a 17 year old growing up in a small town in North Carolina, um, I quit the cheerleading squad after going to a Halloween carnival that the key club at my high school um, put on for the local quote unquote, what we called back then an orphanage. And um, it was the Church of God Home for Children in Kannapolis, North Carolina. It could still be there for all I know. But I went and um, we set up different booths, uh, games for the kids. And um, then there was a, a time period after that where there was lots of candy and cookies and dinner and whatever. And this little boy came up to me And he said, my name is Jimmy and I'm eight years old. And I was like, oh, hey, you know, I'm thinking he's just another kid. And, um, and he said, I want a cookie. I was like, all right. So we walk over to the table where there's all the cookies. And I was like, which one do you want? He points to one and I get it for him. And then he runs off. And the social worker came over to me and said, did that little boy speak to you? And I said, he did. I said, he told me what his name was and how old he was and that he wanted a cookie and come to find out he was a selective mute. Um, He was a kid that, you know, chose not to speak um, for various reasons. And I was the first person that he had spoken to. 
And in that moment, I just, I think I I had a light bulb moment that maybe there was something about me that could get to young people that were challenged in all the ways that young people can be challenged. So I quit the cheerleading squad and I decided that I was going to volunteer at this group home after school. And so every day of my junior and senior year of high school, I drove to that group home and set up their library. Um, It was... (laughs) It was a room off the back of the gymnasium that had the worst books in it that no kid would ever want to read. So I cleaned them out and I called a family member who I thought could help me and said, I really want to re-outfit this library. He wrote me a check. I got it cashed and I went to the Walden Books. If anybody remembers Walden Books from back in the day. I remember Walden Books. Yep. (laughs) And I said, I, I want to, you know, outfit the library at the church got home for children. And they were like, what? And so they ended up actually calling like a regional manager who heard about what I was doing and um, took whatever money I had and probably doubled or tripled it. And I drove off in my little car that I had at the time that was a hand-me-down from a hand-me-down, drove to the children's home went to the local library and got a bunch of those little pockets that used to go in the back of books and the little slips of paper and the stamp (laughs) back before anything was digital. And I cataloged all those books and set them up on the Dewey Decimal System. I had to learn how to do it. I couldn't tell you how to do it today. And so I reestablished this this library and it became a a place for um, the kids to come to, to just check out books or do homework. We had tables. Um, and dividers, you know, so they could kind of sit and have privacy. And um, I managed somehow to get a uh, a Commodore 64. That's how long ago this was. This was like <laughs> early 90s. I remember so the I, Commodore. I mean, <laughs> so um, got a computer in there and um, I did that for my last two years. And I just knew at that point that I would always work with young people in that situation. And so I went to college and graduate school and in graduate school, um, I was getting a master's degree in counseling and uh, I had gotten a bachelor's degree in educational psychology. And in my years of graduate school, I worked in an art center for at-risk kids and um, mainly worked with a group of teenage boys who were in an alternative school situation and um, many of them in foster care, not all of them. And then um, as I was getting out of graduate school, I needed to do a practicum and an internship and I actually went to South Carolina's largest group home at the time, which is no longer in existence, um, Carolina Children's Home, where I started there as an intern. And I started out with a caseload of two kids. And um, I'll never forget this one girl who I just adored. She had these amazing manners and she's just sort of the antithesis of everything that people stereotypically think about a foster care kid very mild-mannered followed the rules sweet not mad at the world necessarily because you know a lot of young people in that situation not only deserve to be mad at the world but they are and I get that um and I kept saying to my supervisor there's something else going on with this kid and nobody would really listen to me and one day I saw her disassociate in my office So she starts talking about some abuse that she experienced and her eyes roll back in her head and she comes back to totally different voice, totally different 
cadence and the way she sounded angry all she's a different person and for me I was like and now I am talking to a different personality um, and not everybody in the therapy world gets to actually um, experience disassociation but I did before I was even remotely licensed I was still an intern um, I, I witnessed her later have a, you know a, a full psychotic breakdown um, and we were, we were a, a pretty well outfitted group home. And so we were able to house kids even in those moments where they are having a full breakdown. Um, and, you know, we, we want to try to keep them in the environment in which they feel safe and to the best of our ability, you know, and in those days I was 22, 23 years old. So I'm a kid <laughs> responsible for other kids who are, you know, far more uh, advanced in some ways than I am, simply because of what they've lived through. Um, and of course, challenged in different ways than I was because of what they've been through. Um, but the amount of responsibility that I think about having as a young person working in a group home really to this day, all these years later, baffles me. Right. I mean, some of that had to have been scary. We have a son who just disassociates, not to the level that you're describing. But I mean, I can only imagine what that was like for you. That must have been very scary. Well, I mean, I don't know. You know, I think that it takes I always say if you can work in a group home, you can work anywhere. Um, and the reason that I say that is not out of disrespect for the young people, but it is really hard work. Um, and it has set me up for a life where, you know, even today I leave at five o'clock and I leave that stuff in the office, because if you don't, you're going to cross over from therapist to client very quickly. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. it, it can be scary, but there's also a trick, I think, to being in that work, which is I had to come in every day and in some ways prove to those kids that I was strong enough to be there. And I was really okay with that because they deserved adults who cared enough to be there. And I did, you know, I loved them. Um, and some of them are still in touch with me today. And that was 23, 24 years ago. Um, so, you know, other things that I would, I've experienced is that no matter how much training and schooling and how many letters I managed to get after my name, um, there are things that happen in group homes that aren't supposed to happen. Um, you don't want them to happen, but they happen. And a lot of it is because kids are, you know, mentally and emotionally challenged, but they're also sexually reactive. Um, the staff is horribly stressed and underpaid, especially back then. I mean, we're talking 19... 98, 99, 2000, you know, we were paying direct care staff like minimum wage, which back then I think might've been 525 or something. I mean, you know, so to think about if we were paying our $15 an hour, what that they, Lord, they would have been rolling in money. Um, and they're often working double shifts. Yeah. I, I remember those days and 525 sounds about right. And that's, yeah. but yeah. yeah, here's the thing that blows my mind is that even today, so many places still, I mean, right now, middle of the pandemic, the economy is a weird place. I mean, you can make 
fifteen dollars an hour at a fast food joint. So don't I I don't understand that. But so much of this stuff has been for, historically staffed by as lowly paid people as we can. Right. You know, my wife used to work for Amanda used to work for a, a company that um, took care of older ladies that had uh, developmental type disabilities and and all that sort of stuff. And they start you out at such a low pay rate on a regular basis. It's it's a wonder that they have people who come to work for them, and a true wonder that they get anybody who's worth it, worth anything to stay there. Well, I was twenty three years old, making twenty three thousand dollars a year with a master's degree and about seventy thousand dollars in student loans. Ooh. Ooh. Back then, I was making about the same amount of money with zero, um, zero official, yeah, no, no letters behind my name, and no student loans, and no, no college education to be, to be dealt with there. So, now, sorry if you guys have got some sound in the background. We do have little girl here, and she is going to be making a little noise today. Apparently, she has really decided she wants to be heard. Look, I want to be here with her. So, so, um. So, you know, one of the, just to give you some story of my transition through, through working in group homes. So I started out as the intern. And then when I got my master's degree, they offered me a job in what was a supervised independent living program. Um, and so I was working with kids that were 16 to 21. And these were young people in high school, some in college, um, some in trade school and other types of programs. If they weren't in school, they had to be working full time. And at that time, the uh, state, you know, these kids were all in in state custody. And so the state, you know, developed these programs so that they didn't have to be out the door at 18. They could stay till they were 21, you know, because we're all grown at 21. (laughs) Yeah, I have a couple of kids who are 21 and older. And yeah, Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) if you listen to this episode you know what i'm saying You're yeah dumb. I'm, I'm 47 <laughs> i'm 47 and still wondering if i've grown up at all right right <laughs> <laughs> but um so i worked in the supervised independent living program and has a really interesting young people there um i remember my first gang member who very unstereotypically was a white kid um who who took some pretty serious uh psychotropic meds and had to take vitamin E on a regular basis because he had tardive dyskinesia that was really severe. So for people that don't know what tardive dyskinesia is, it's sort I of an involuntary muscle movement. Okay. So a lot of times some of the psychotropic meds these young people would be on, it would make them jerk and or their face would move real funny. And so, you know, it made them feel a little more ostracized. So we'd give them the vitamin E and it would help. This young man um, was actually pretty high up in the, the local gang structure. And it was interesting that he sort of signed himself back into care. Like he'd kind of been running the streets, I think, but, you know, just kind of decided to kind of just give up on that, I guess. Or, you know, I don't really know how we ended up with him. I thoroughly enjoyed him. He was smart and he was intelligent and he would have amazing conversations um, and had experienced so much and, and what just wasn't what people, you know, often again, can stereotype with a, a, a young person in foster care, um, but he was dangerous and people were scared of him to a degree that he could kind of fly off the handle and you wouldn't necessarily know when or if, and I'm like, oh, that's, 
that's a lot of people, <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, and then I had a young girl come in. I'll never forget her. Sweet. Oh, she was so sweet. Um, but she was severely, severely schizophrenic and she would hear all kinds of things that were not there. And, um, one of the first kids I ever had to physically restrain, she was banging her head, um, up against a wall. And I was able to sort of get my arms around her and sit with her and, and hold her and just tuck my head right in next to her. So she would stop, you know, flailing. And, um, she eventually fell asleep in my arms and I'll never forget it. Um, and I really think she was just a young person who had experienced so much abuse and neglect. And, you know, I got into a place at that point of really understanding what these kids were up against and it was everything hard. Yeah. Just up against everything hard. I think if, uh, if you go back two episodes, I believe it is. And, um, or it might be, yeah, two episodes ago was with Jill Riley and Jill Riley now works, um, works helping kids. Um, but she has some of her own struggles with dissociative identity disorder and some of that. And actually she has a podcast out there, um, post-traumatic faith. And I was listening to one of her episodes just a couple days ago where she interviewed another woman who had dissociative identity disorder. And I was like, mm-hmm. oh, wow, this, because I'm a, I'm a brain science nerd. Like I find all the, the brain stuff wildly interesting. And that one, especially because we can't even fathom the, the depths of what DID really is or how it works and all of that. Mm-hmm. But you know, the fact that, that kids are going through this and we know if nothing else, we know it is typically a product of what humans do to kids. Yep. And that just blows me away. You know, we, we know this and people still do it. Well, and what's amazing to me is that the brain is sophisticated enough to protect us. And that is what disassociative disorder really is, is that your brain is compartmentalizing so that you can survive it. And, you know, thank whomever, God, universe, whatever people believe in, for our body's ability to withstand that hey there foster care nation we'd like to take a quick minute to step out of the podcast here and ask you guys for a little bit of support if you could share an episode with people friends in a group with family anywhere where there's somebody who would like to hear this also if you'd like to join us and support our mission a couple dollars a month would be really helpful you can find us on patreon at patreon.com slash foster care nation now back to the show You know, when I would, when I think about, I was having a conversation with somebody at work last week, and and this is definitely one of the stories in my career that, you know, I will never forget. Um, Today, I am the chief operating officer of of a pharmaceutical research company that, that does, you know, clinical trials. And I never knew, I thought I was going to work in group home to be a therapist my whole life. And my career has had many, many turns in it, but you know, somebody was talking about having a bad day at work the other day. And I said, you know, my perspective on this is really different. And let me tell you what a bad day at work is. December 29th, 1999, I am on call. So when you work in a group home back then, you shared call and it was my week to be on call. And I get a phone call 
from the county coroner who proceeds to tell me that one of the kids that we had sent home on a home visit for the holidays had been shot in the front yard and had expired. And I was like, expired? Like, what expired? And, you know, you know, yes, Miss Weatherly, he's deceased. And I mean, it, it's really a, a life, it was a life-changing event for me because there was nothing that I had ever studied, nothing anybody ever taught me or told me that could prepare me for that. And so, you know, I have to get on the phone with the hospital and they're not really wanting to give me information. And I'm like, you have to understand I have his Medicaid number. So if you want to get paid, you're going to need to share information with me. The dollar sign is usually the pry bar that works. Right. And the, and the, the kid is technically in our care. I mean, on behalf of the state, you know, they just didn't kind of connect all the dots and to understand that that young man had been mistaken for his older brother. Um, who was an active gang member at the time, um, it was a drive-by shooting and, and he was shot in the head and they tried to do surgery and save him and they couldn't. And then it was a, it was uh, a Thursday night and the next day I had to go to work and tell the other 11 boys who lived with him that he was gone and he was never coming back. And then he died on a home visit. Wow. And that's not an easy conversation to have with kids who have already experienced so much loss, who want to go home more than anything, which is always really hard for people who never, you know, worked with young people in foster care. They always want to go home, regardless of what the situation they're coming out of has been. And now this kid has gone home and, and been shot. Um, How many buckets of trauma does that bring into their life? <laughs> I have no idea, you know, and, and I have no idea how we all got through that. All I know is those young men wrapped their arms around me in ways I could not wrap my arms around them. They'd experienced so much hurt and loss and devastation that they actually handled it far better than I did. And so we together as a family, you know, had to kind of go through this, this, this young man's funeral where his mother who abused and neglected him his whole life is sitting on the front row wailing and crying. And I understand she lost her son, but I'm the one that made sure he had toilet paper every day. I feel you on that. I really, <laughs> I have some was, specific instances where I really feel you on that. And it was real. I, I remember in that moment just being really, I felt like gut punched because I was in so much pain at hit for, from losing him. Um, but I was also like, golly, shut up lady. You know, like he's kind of in this situation because of you. Um, and I wanted everything I could muster to not blame her and be mad at her, but it was hard. It was hard. And I can still hear her as I'm telling it to you now. So when I was talking to somebody at work the other day about a really hard day at work, I said, let me tell you something. A really hard day at work is when you get a phone call from the county coroner telling you that one of the kids in your program has expired. That's a hard day at work. So far, we haven't had any hard days here. I had another hard day. Um, after I actually left the children's home, um, I went and ran a, um, 
alcohol enforcement teams for the local drug and alcohol prevention um, agency. And we were out on a, on a pre, a, a proactive uh, event one night. And um, we get a call that there's been a shooting. And so because we were nearby, we got to go. So we go and um, the officers go into the house and sure enough, there's um, a deceased male and I hear over the radio in the car, I hear the person's name. And it was one of my kids from the children's home. And I'm like, this place is going to follow me for the rest of my life. You know, it's sort of how I felt in the moment. I'd probably been gone for two years at that point. Um, you know, it's, that's not easy work. And, and I would say it's hard for me now being so far removed from it now to think of it that way, but it's, it was really, really hard work to go do that every day and to know that it didn't matter what I did, um, or what I didn't do. Those young people had every card stacked against them. And knowing that they were kind of being raised by all these people who work where they live. Um, and then they're going to go out in the world and be expected to be productive. I'm like, I know a lot of rich kids who can't get it together. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> with, with two parents and trust funds and all that junk. Um, but, you know, to think of it as these young people who really, truly come from a lot of really sad situations abuse neglect what have you um and are expected to make it in life is astonishing to me it's astonishing to me that any of them do but they do yeah um i'm still in touch with one young man today who has a beautiful wife two beautiful daughters he has he's you know he's living the dream um and he's worked for it you know he went to college and he's worked for it and and i'm so proud of him i couldn't be more proud of him um and I, I know a lot of them are still out there. You know, I've had kids track me down over the years um, to tell me like, you know, I had no, I hated you in the moment because <laughs> you made me do all the things <laughs> I was, didn't want to do as a teenager. Um, but now I understand, you know, and, and they'll find me and thank me. Um, I lost a couple to gang violence even after that. Um, and probably one of the hardest times I ever had was when one of the young men that I worked with <clears throat> had a really severe case of scoliosis and he had a, like a 38 degree curvature of the spine and had he not come into care, he probably would have suffocated and died from it. Ooh. Just a slow, long, painful. I don't know how, you know, this ever, I don't know how it ever got as bad as it did, but when you're, you know, when you're living in abuse and neglect, this is what happens. And they had to go in and put a rod in his back. And, um, you know, I had to go to the hospital every day and just be there for him. Like a person, like a parent would be, you know, I'm 25, 26 years old. Um, and I went, I went in one day and he was sleeping and the hospital had like a bottle of lotion sitting by his bed. And I just took that lotion and rubbed his feet, rubbed it on his feet because his feet were dry, you know, because you're he can't really move a lot. He's just had a metal rod put in his back. And he woke up and he looked at me and he was groggy. And he said, 
I love you so much. <laughs> and I, you know, and I, it could have been the pain meds, but I knew that he knew in that moment, somebody cared about him, Yes, you know? And so there's sort of this beauty and this despair in being somebody who's worked in a group home because you have these moments where um, you and the young people overcome things together um, you, you, you see light bulbs go off for them. Um, I had one kid tell me one time after he'd failed several drug screens that I was meaner to him than his mother had ever been. <laughs> and I said, well, if I'm so mean, pack your sh- and move out. And he was like, you can't kick me out of here. I said, watch me. And I went in his room and started throwing his stuff in garbage bags and put it out on the front porch. And he was like, have you lost your mind? I said, not yet, but I might. And he was just sobbing. You can't make me leave. You can't make me And I was like, then get it together, man. Get it together. If you hate it so much here, I'll help you get out. You don't have to be here. And then it was, you know, begging me to stay. And sometimes, like I said, it's always kind of pushing the envelope a little bit of, letting those young people know that you're going to show up no matter what. And you might do some wild things in the process to, to get through, you know, because not, you know, usual tactics don't always work in situations like that. You know, kids of trauma rarely respond regularly or normally if there is such thing to the things that, that a quote unquote neurotypical kid will respond to. I have Mm -hmm. a good friend of mine I've known since, we were getting in trouble together before kindergarten. All right. We'll just put it that way. We'd known each other for a lot of years. And and um, his family moved away out of state. And he got off into some bad stuff and was running with a gang, was in the middle of a bunch of gang violence. He was using, buying, selling, the whole nine. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and when he had enough people looking to kill him, one day he got in his 1979 Chevy Monza, which... You've got to have some gray hair to know what that even is. <laughs> yes. And he drove that car from Florida all the way back up to Missouri where we live. And he showed up on our front doorstep. And my parents, I was I was 17th in time, I believe. And um, he, he showed up there and said, hey, can I hang out for a while? My dad, who was a police officer, is well, he was one of those guys who could just mentor young men in ways that I cannot. <laughs> he had different strengths than me. And he he took him out and he said, look, here's here's some real simple stuff that we're going to do. You can do this. You can stay here. If you can't, dude, I will. You will land in Florida. You <laughs> I will throw you so hard you will land there. So don't mess up with this stuff down here. And um, today, if you were to Google search his first and last name, you would find him because he's somebody in his world of work. He's a father to, to um, three kids now. Um, is it three? Yeah, I, I lose track. I have too many friends with too many kids now. <laughs> but he, he's become a great dad. He's become a really successful entrepreneur. He, he's just, you know, all these things. But it all came out of that th- that place where he had one person take mm-hmm. an interest in him and be one stand beside him. That's really all it takes. And, you know, I mean, I think uh, if people knew, if adults knew um, that all it takes is one adult to make a difference in the life of a child, a think a lot of a lot more adults you know might step up to the plate I don't know I mean for me those days it was five years of my life that feels still 20 some odd years later like it was 105 years of my life um 
just because every day you just never knew what you were going to be dealing with. So I'd get, you know, I'd get to work at eight or nine o'clock in the morning and the kids would already be at school. And then they'd get home at, you know, two and three in the afternoon. And you just never knew. Uh, I've been attacked by kids. I've been, I've been bitten. Um, I, we had two siblings that were raised in a very weird situation. Both parents were severely developmentally just delayed. And the boys grew up very sexually exposed. And so they would do very strange things. Like you would be standing in the cafeteria line with the kids and you would just be talking to one of them and they would just reach out and grab your boob. And it wouldn't be like a grab. It would just, they'd rest their hand there. And a lot of times you wouldn't even notice it. And so we were always trained to be, you know, to sort of stand sideways with them and to not have like a full frontal stance. Um, you know, I mean, there were all kinds of things that those two kids really required and the whole staff, even the staff that did not work in the house that they lived in had to be attuned to because of their sexual reactivity. Um, and it wasn't, you know, you couldn't get mad at them about it. You just had to kind of redirect that behavior and say, Hey, that's, you can't do that. And let me tell you why you can't do it. Um, you know, and we, I remember there was one situation where one of the boys that lived in the um, cottage that I managed um, was accused of sexually assaulting another girl. And he had been sexually reactive at various points. And these are the things that are really hard to deal with when you're working in a group home and there has to be outside investigations and, you know, the different people come in from different agencies and you know, it was it, those kinds of situations were what made that hard because a kid could take your profession from you at any moment. And a lot of people don't realize that that can happen when they get into the work. Um, but like, a, particularly our, our uh, direct care staff would have out of home investigate out of home placement organization investigations against them all the time. And, um, you know, knowing that they were in school to be social workers or in school to be counselors or whatever, um, you know, and then knowing they were up against these investigations all the time and still showed up, still came to work, still made minimum wage back then, which, as we talked about earlier, wasn't very much. Um, Yeah, it was a very precarious world to be in, but I'm grateful to have been there and to have experienced those young people. Um. I remember them all. I mean, I haven't used any real names today, but I remember them all. I remember all their names and I remember all different stories with them. One of my favorites, um, after the kid that um, physically attacked me that I'll never forget, um, grabbed me by my name tag, which was supposed to be a pull away name tag and it didn't pull away. So he was choking me with my name tag and um, the other 11 boys came after him. And when the staff realized what was going on, I was like, go get the other 11, like let him run because they're going to pulverize him when they get a hold of him. Um, You know, and it was all about getting those other boys to calm down. And that kid, it was a situation where I said, this kid is in the wrong level of care. He needs a higher level of supervision. We were a pretty free flowing house. Like you could go and come as you wanted to, you could go to the mall, you could go to the school dance, you could do all that stuff. Uh, it wasn't a lockdown facility by any means. And this kid, I kept telling my supervisors, this kid is in the wrong placement. And sure enough, come to find out 
he had slipped through the cracks and was in the wrong placement. And um, then we were getting in and he was, a, he happened to be a white kid and all my other kids were black kids. And um, we were getting the kid that I told you a little bit ago that was, that's so sort of has a great life now and this wonderful family. And he's really made it, made a good way for himself. Um, he was coming in and, you know, I always introduce the boys like, Hey, we've got so-and-so coming and here's sort of their story. And, um, and <laughs> this one kid says, another white boy. And I said, yes. And he said, you know what they do? You know, we have to go beat them up when they mess with you. <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> I mean, so there's, there's good and bad, but I am so grateful for the time that I was able to spend, um, working with young people in that situation. And, you know, I hope wherever they are today that, that they're doing okay. And, you know, that hopefully I did something right. Something, I don't know what, I was 23, 24, 25, 26, 27 years old. I didn't know how to get myself out of bed most days. I'm just going to say by showing up, you were doing something right. Because I remember back in that time frame in the late 90s, and I worked at a Burger King. And I was a shift manager because I was super special. And I think I was making $8 an hour. So yes, I was making more rolling. than you while I was managing kids flipping burgers. Oh. Managing should probably be in air quotes there, but that's a whole different story, you know. <laughs> but I, you know, so I was I was making more than you while you were managing kids with things like dissociative disorder, DID, you know, probably undiagnosed ADD and ADHD because most of that wasn't really diagnosed at that time frame, right? We were so the funny thing is we were that was coming on the scene. So every kid had you know, I mean, our, our staff psychiatrist was like, yep, they got it. And they got it. They got it. And they got it. And I was like, I probably got it too. You know? Exactly. <laughs> you who do. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Are you trying to offend me over here, woman? Easily done. <laughs> Easily done. Yeah. Okay. I may or may not. Yeah. That's one of those things I often wondered as an adult now, because I didn't get diagnosed with anything as a kid. The, yeah, I was born in the 70s. You know, you know what they diagnosed back then? A lack of a switch. And, you know, and so <laughs> you did the switch dance and that was supposed to fix everything. But truthfully speaking, I look back now and I raise, you know, we've got at least one kid in our house who ADHD is not a question. He's not been diagnosed. I don't like the DSM has his picture in it. Actually, like, he has been diagnosed. Oh, has he? Yeah. Oh. I know we realize we got an official one yet, but yeah, there's no doubt in our minds this kid's ADHD, right? But I grew up through a lot of that stuff, and I look back right. and go, "Holy crap, that was me!" Oh, that, yeah. And I, you know, dissociation. I mean, let's just be honest. Yeah, after having having sat through some work with one of our other kids and and filling out a parent questionnaire, at the end of which she asked me, you know, the the parent questionnaire was one about him and one about me. And she said, well, what did you think about our, our the, the, the questionnaire I gave you about you? And I'm like, I did not like it. Why are you writing these surveys all about me? She <laughs> said, I noticed you scored high. I'm like, like 100%? Like you were right now. And so I look at it now. I'm like, holy crap. How did I, I even survive through all that? So I'd be curious to go back now and and under, you know, just figure out whether or not, like, we were if we were to diagnose this, did I have to learn my way through this? Because I think the neat part about that is I've become, I would say I've become fairly successful. 
Yeah. I mean, I've got a podcast, so I'm like internet famous and stuff, right? (laughs) (laughs) But no, I've got lots of kids and I've got a a decent job. You know, I take care of my family. We've been we've been successful under what most people would consider, especially considering all the struggles we've had to work our way through. And if that's the case, I probably need to sit down and figure out like what this story is and, and how I fought through all that, because that's a wealth of information I can maybe give to a kid who's going through struggles. Not that my kids would listen, because you don't listen to dad when he tells you stuff. He's just crazy and wrong. But, but you know, it maybe it'll help somebody else. Well, I mean, that's just it, though. I mean, as you said earlier, it just takes one adult. And sometimes it's not your parent. Even if you're living in a two-parent, what appears to be relatively intact household, um, which is the best I think any parent can do, <laughs> is that it looks relatively intact. Um, Amen. It might not be a parent. <laughs> it may be a coach. It may be... I don't know, some dude down the street that you just ride by on your bike and he says, Hey to you. And you just feel like you matter for a minute. I mean, I think that, um, as adults, and this is what's being lost, I think in a lot of ways as adults, we owe it to young people to notice them. I always say, be the adult you needed when you were a kid. And I think without knowing it, that's what I was trying to do back then. Did I do it right all the time? Mm-mm. No. Um, could my supervisors have trained me up in the way to go and get it right? No, no. They were in their thirties. You know, they were real old. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, so I just feel so fortunate to have survived it. And I always say, I mean, I went on to work for the white house and I went on to do really amazing things. And I, and I will say, I was able to do all of those things because I worked in a group home. Um, the other day, the uh, owner of my company said to me, you know, nobody handles a crisis like you do. And I said, it's because I worked in a group home. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and you know, to say that, and I, I, again, I don't ever want to disparage young people who are growing up in foster care or who grew up in, in group homes. Um, they're given a deck and, and they got to work through it. And you know, cards stacked against them from the get. And I'm always amazed how they put one foot in front of the other every day. I'm amazed those kids went to school. I'm amazed those kids played on sports teams. I'm amazed they got anything right. Because to think that the people that birthed you, abused you and neglected you so badly that they lost you, um, and you're still making it, I'm having another memory of a young girl who um, had come to the United States um, in an immigrant situation. She was not documented at the time. And of course, back then, you know, that I don't even know how we handled it back then. I mean, we handle it crazy today. But um, anyway, she's pregnant. And the group home that she was in would not allow her to be pregnant there. And we would. And she came in and she had the baby. And of course, that baby is immediately going to go into foster care. And um, she was devastated. And so the amazing thing is that there was a family that connected with her through their daughter. They were friends at school and they fought for custody of her child so that she could have her child. And they eventually adopted her. And what, and, you know, so there was an immigration issue there and she was, I think she was like 15, um, she had a family, but they completely disowned her because she got pregnant. 
And um, she, you know, I don't ever remember her being anything but a great mother. And she certainly didn't have a great family to <laughs> taught her that. Um, you know, the resiliency of children in foster care is, uh, it's, it's not something that I'll ever forget. And I, you know, again, when I think about a bad day, I remember, I remember December 29th, 1999, and losing that kid to a gunshot wound to the head on a home visit. That's a bad day. It puts everything in perspective for me, um, to remember that it puts everything in perspective for me to say, today's not a bad day. Today's just a day that doesn't feel great because I survived that day. Um, being a 20 something year old in that job and losing that kid and having to get the other 11 through it. Um, but you know, uh, yeah, it was a great adventure and I'm really grateful for it. And I'm really grateful to every young person who I ever encountered in that time. You know, you mentioned that, that bad day thing. And that's, that's one of the things that I've told the story probably too many times at this point, but one day after a long day at work, I came home, I was frustrated, I was aggravated, you know, you know, the boss was being a jerk, whatever, I don't know. Um, but it was, it was just a difficult day and we sat down to dinner and then she was probably three or four years old. Three. And three. Okay. She knows. <laughs> so three-year-old little girl says, can I say grace for dinner? And we said, sure, go ahead, baby. And she folds her little hands and bows her little brown eyes and she says, dear God. Thank you that my new mommy and daddy aren't dead yet. Amen. And Amanda and I looked at each other and I kind of looked up and I thought, all right, all right, I get it. I get it. I thought I was having a bad day. Apparently I was being a ginormous puss and God wanted to point that out really clearly. He did. <laughs> oh, yeah. But, you know, through the journey with, with our, our oldest daughter, all the time she spent it at Children's Hospital, I'll tell you something. Anytime you think you're having a bad day, I want you to go down to the nearest children's hospital yes. and find the first precocious little eight-year-old girl with no hair on her head riding around in a wagon and just talk to her. Okay. Give her 20 minutes of your time and just ask her questions. And if you don't leave there a changed human, you're not paying attention. Right. Um, when I worked at the Office of National Drug Control Policy, um, we had I worked under Director uh, Gil Kurlikowski, who was an amazing man. And... Gil's kind of the person that taught me that perspective. He reminded me he'd been a cop for 40 years and, you know, then he becomes the United States drug czar appointed by President Obama. And he says one day in a, in a meeting with all of us, he said, you know, I want you to understand that I think a bad day at work is when someone dies. You know, so when you're the chief of police, what you want is to finish each day and, and nobody dies. And I was like, well, that's a way to look at it. You know, I get that. Um, and he, there's a, there was a picture of him on the eighth floor of our building, which was the, the floor that he worked on. And it was a picture of him holding a, an infant, a tiny, tiny baby, tinier than the one you have in your arms, Amanda, who um, was born drug addicted. And he is crying. He's got tears in his eyes. And, you know, knowing in his heart how hard that was for him to see, but he was also a person who had a tremendous amount of compassion for that mother. Um, that she is drug addicted and this is not what she wanted for her child. Um, and I think one of the, the things that I always had to reconcile with was when I would meet the parents of these young people, you know, you sort of, you sort of walk a fine line between like wanting to wring their neck and just like, 
you know, and get mad at them. And also understanding that they are probably, you know, there may be substance abuse. They may be being abused in the, in the marriage that they're in. They probably grew up under the same circumstances and they're repeating the cycle that they know. Um, yeah, those were hard days. And then we just, we had some parents that you could just tell were developmentally just delayed themselves and disabled themselves who just couldn't get it, you know, just couldn't function as a parent. Um, you know, mothers who, you know, I think it was always hardest for me to meet the mothers because I am a female. Um, and to know that, you know, this one mother that I knew had cracked a high heel into her kid's skull. Mm. Um, and I'm like, you're, you're that woman, you're, you're her. And to know that that kid had to get returned home Yeah. after she'd completed what she needed to complete to get him back. Probably one of the hardest days of my life, other than losing the young man to the gunshot wound. Um, on the home visit, but that child did not want to go home. Um, he wanted to stay in foster care, but because his mother had done the things to earn him back, he had to go. And he went kicking and screaming at the age of 16. Um, this wasn't like an eight-year-old. This was a 16-year-old. Yeah, it's uh, it's always difficult to, from those moments for sure. We've, you know, we've, we've seen a couple of those moments come along ourselves. And, you know, I, you're talking about walking that fine line. And I just want to know if you have any extra highlighters, you can highlight that line for me because oftentimes I don't see it. Mm-hmm. You know, I just don't see the line. It's really easy. It's really easy to fall off the edge of that line and, and fall towards, you know, because, yeah, and I've, I've probably discussed this on here a time or two in the past, but I, I have like a, a mission statement, a, per, a, a purpose statement. And part of that is, you know, protecting God's most vulnerable children, right? And so let me tell you something. If I'm going to make a misjudgment, I'm probably going to make the misjudgment towards being more protective of the child than anything else. Not that that's the right way to do it, but it seems to be the least damaging way. And so that that's what I lean towards. I think most people do, really. I mean, you hope, you hope, and you and you hope you get forgiven <laughs> if, if in the if in the process of defending a child, you know, you, you do something that's out out of the lane, but. Yeah, I mean, those were, you know, I'll never forget that kid, just the days leading up to knowing that he had to go home to that mother who had cracked a high heel into his into his skull. He was yeah. found in a park with a skull fracture, a skull break oh. from a high heel, a shoe. So, That's kind of impressive. I mean. there's There might be a special place in hell for her still. You know, hey. I, you know, you might not know this about me, but I do a little bit of blacksmithing on the side. Um, and so if they need somebody to, who's got a good solid air source to really heat that spot and hell up for, I, I will donate my, my blower to just get that spot nice and warm. Yeah, it's, you know, it's hard. It, it is hard because there's a certain level of empathy and angst that we, you know, kind of have to have because I, I do think that a lot of the parents that are... <clears throat> find themselves in these situations where they're losing their kids because they created abuse and neglect. Um, you know, what, what, what is within that person that that's what they're doing to their child? I can't imagine what's going on within that person that that's what you're doing. Um, you know, the Gabriel, Gabriel Fernandez, is that his name? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. You know, one of the most famous abuse cases in the entire country and in the history of foster care systems in general, um, you know, systemic repeated abuse that was totally known by the system and totally overlooked. Um, how does a kid go to school with those kinds of injuries on a daily basis? Um, what was going on in his mother that that's what she did, you know? I don't know. The world is, is messed up and beautiful all at the same time. Yes, it is. It is definitely messed up and beautiful at the same time. And I think our job is to, uh, another part of that, that whole mission statement is, you know, that I have is says that I bring chaos to order and, you know, talking about the lives of, of God's most vulnerable. Right. And that's one of the things that I try to do on a regular basis. And my God, there's not a rule book on how to do that, but it's, yeah, it's just a, take a step. Let's try something. Let's see what else we can do. Let's see if we can help this way or that way. And that's one of the things that most people don't understand how much of this is, is truly trial and error. It's let's just try and help. Let's just try and help. Both of my brothers are new dads ish. Uh, In fact, one of them just had his first kid a week ago. And, you know, it's amazing to watch them go from, you know, these goofy, people that you know i've seen as toddlers and infants and college kids themselves become these automatic like just beautiful humans that love this other human in a way that you know they probably never knew they could love anything and you know it's just so amazing to see them do that and you know humans are really one of the only creatures that doesn't innately love their own um from the get um, I, you know, I can't really think of many other animals out there that abuse their own children. Um, so it's, it's an amazing thing to think that the most intelligent species on earth doesn't automatically come out, you know, of, of the, of the hospital or wherever, you know, they've had their child wanting to love it and take care of it and defend it and fight for it in every way possible. It is a great mystery that unfortunately I think we will never solve. Well, you are working on the premises that humans are the most intelligent animals on the earth. That's true. That's probably not the truth. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I've met some that make that statement very challenging. <laughs> What's that old country song? When I come back, I want to be my dog. You know, have a good life. <laughs> That's a really good song. I definitely want to be my dog. She's sitting right next to me, just totally zonked out. Yeah, and and my little ones are not zonked out anywhere and not being cooperative today. And y'all have probably heard plenty of noise. I think there was actually a sword fight occurring in the yes, next room over a few minutes ago. <laughs> well, I can't wait to learn about who won. This little yeah. one has been an, a, an angel this whole time. Well, that's because I have a mute button. You haven't heard all of her fussing. No. <laughs> Every time I had to stand up, that was because she was, she was uh, having a little bit of a fit. Okay. Yeah. She's beautiful. She, she might does. be a little bit spoiled. She's but a that's totally fine. We picked her up from the NICU at two weeks old, and she's five months old now and thriving and doing much better than she was before. So I'm going to take it as a win. Yeah, she's All one right. of those kids who did not walk out of the hospital with a parent who innately loved her, right? And so there's there's some work to be done there. She needs to know what that unconditional love is. Uh, she was also born an addict. Mm-hmm. So... 
Yeah. So, so, you know, that, that's part of like our mission. You know, everybody thinks, oh, raising, I want the babies. The babies are, they're so, you just got to love them and you just got to, I'm like, no, no, no. Let me tell you, we, we've had several addicted babies come through our home, right? That's kind of, kind of the place that I, I tell the workers, if you have an addicted baby, I'm your, call me. But you know, the truth is, is that if you have an addicted baby and they come to my house, I know that my job is not to love them when they're cute. Anybody will love them when they're cute. I can give them to any old lady and they'll just love them to death when they're cute. My job is to love them when they're not cute, when they're going through withdrawals. They're screaming. Yeah. Yeah. For hours. When she hours. wakes wakes you up in the middle of the night every 15 minutes. Now, that's not my story because I sleep well. But Amanda, on the other hand, <laughs> she has a 15-minute alarm clock a lot of nights. Oh, yeah. And but The yeah. shakes don't help babies sleep. No. Right. Yeah. So yeah, that that's that's really that you know that's that's what we see as our job. That's our mission in all of this. Is, so how many children have come through your house? We don't um, have an exact number. Thirty. Yeah, we think it's it's somewhere between twenty and thirty. Yeah, it's like closer to the thirty. <laughs> this is one of those moments where you wish the podcast people could see my face. I mean, <laughs> twenty to thirty. Okay, I was thinking you were going to be like, oh, eight or ten, twenty to no, thirty. The, the need is so great, and we oh, yeah. down calls. Yeah, in the past month or so, we've turned down like two different calls. But I mean, we need help. Yeah. Actually, the day before the day before we found about baby girl here, um, I had a call from a worker who had a 13 year old boy with some attachment related stuff. And I'm like, nope, no, absolutely not. And she goes, can we talk? I'm like, no, we cannot talk. I am not bringing a 13 year old boy into my house. I have a 14 year old daughter. No, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I, yeah, there, there are some things I know about the teen years, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, we're not bringing that kind of drama into our house. I, I don't need that right now. Besides that, Amanda and I really are wired for the younger ones, um, you know. And, and we are wired for the little ones and the little ones work for our kids, too. And that's yeah. the biggest thing is. So how many kids do you have that are yours, yours? <laughs> that are yours. That's yours. an excellent question. Um, that I actually birthed. I birthed two. Okay. And including the baby, we have eight. Yeah. So, so. we had our wait, oldest. You, wait, wait, wait. You have eight in your house right now? No, we're down. No, we're down to five. Two of them are out of the house. So we have okay. five kids and two adults in the house right now. Yeah. Our oldest daughter, biologically speaking, was not our child. She was. She was a family member. Um, she shared a mother with Amanda and. Um, she had a lot of addiction stuff in her life. So she came to stay with us for a number of years and mm-hmm. she called me daddy. She called Amanda mommy. She was our kid. She's, she's on the tattoo wall of my kid. She's up top because she's the oldest. But regardless, <laughs> and then we had, yeah. she got a nasty disease and she passed away at 18. Yeah. So, so we, she would have been 25 this year. And then we have, then a, we have a 23 year old, 21 year old, 16 year old, 14 year old, eight year old, six year old, five month old. Yeah. And Let so, me just say this. Y'all look amazing. <laughs> oh, I don't know about that. You should look like you have been run over 18 times by 24 different 18-wheelers. and seven feel that directions. way. Y'all look amazing. Can I let Thank you know you. a little secret? The doctors told me I've had six strokes. They've seen them on MRI. Yes. And I'm like, oh, I've only got, what, two left if I do one for each kid, right? Um, I've been amazingly fortunate with the strokes that I've had. They've been in the right place in the brain and fairly small. I've been super fortunate. They think they figured out the problem. And um, well, I'm actually going in for another MRI soon to, to take a look and, and make sure that there's nothing, no new activity. They think they've kind of figured it out. But yeah, I, I'm not surprised that I have things that 
that uh, resonate with high stress lifestyles. <laughs> oh my gosh, I need a nap. Right, I say that. I need every a nap, day. and I'm not living this. <laughs> <laughs> I say that five times a day. You know, plus I work a sixty plus hour a week job. I've got. You know, we do the podcast. We have five kids in the house. We have a lot of special need type stuff going on. Lots of therapists. Um, you know, all the stuff yeah, that we the do. Therapy appointments are real. Yeah. You know, somewhere, somewhere in the good book, it, you know, God says something about heaven being a place of rest. And I'm just thinking, whew, I'm looking forward to a rest. <laughs> <laughs> well, and having allowed all those children into your lives, you're certainly out of spot. So. <laughs> Well, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna it get too needy. It takes more than yet. that, but yeah, we've adopted four officially. Yeah, our youngest four were adopted through the system, so that that's kind of how we've come to it all. You know, the youngest two were actually very, very well. Frankie was was brand new. He was he came out of the hospital, and and then our second oldest, he was very young when he he came to stay with us. Kind of a family type thing, so he'd been with us through his first year of life, anyways, quite a bit. So, so yeah, we've had. Most of our kids have been with us the vast majority of our lives, you know, or their lives. Yeah. You know, the other two were, I think, two and three when they came here. Yeah. yeah. So we've had a lot of very young kids, which means a lot of years to to really build that stress level <laughs> and, and a lot of experience <laughs> to try and help other families out with. You know, it's it's yeah. one of the things I've considered just trying to trying to figure out how to maybe even help individuals out with you know to, to help coach somebody through something that they're going through because man some of the stuff we've seen i mean the conversations the the, the things that happen in these homes as i'm sure you know if i haven't worked in a group home you know J- just the other day my eight-year-old and six-year-old are having a uh some sort of a cobra kai something or other fight i don't know it was it was all in good fun at some moment and then my eight-year-old turns and looks at me he shakes his hand he goes man dad his face really hurts my hand. <laughs> so you can only imagine the depth of some of the other stuff that we, we deal with in this house. That, that I, Like I said, working in a group home with teens, I can't imagine the level of things that you've seen and heard. And that that's why I think this is important to tell these stories so people know, like, number one, you're not the only one. No. Your kids are not the only crazy ones. Trust me, we've met crazier. They exist uh, in droves. And, you know, I don't even think of them as being crazy i think of it as this be all of this behavior that is not typical is the result of abuse and neglect yes like this is what happens to people and you know and now i mean i still very much adhere to my my uh mental health and um paying attention to my own mental health that of others people that i work with and um you know even as very high functioning adults, just the things that we go through in normal, natural, quote unquote, families, um, it can be hard. So imagine, you know, so when you, you couple that and pile on top with, you know, abuse and neglect, I mean, you know, kids in foster care are lucky they make it at all, I think, yeah. especially once they're out of the system if they've not been with a stable foster family and they've been more institutionalized, you know, and luckily the group home system has dwindled quite a bit so that young people are in more therapeutic foster homes. Um, but still it's, you know, I mean, I can remember getting kids that would be, you know, they're usually like 15, 16 by the time I would get them. They've been in foster care since they were five, six years old. 
um, who knows what they've seen and how many foster homes they've been in. And then at a certain point, the group home system becomes how they survive it all. Um, because, you know, and it was always weird. You'd get kids that had been in foster homes for a long time and they had to adjust to the group home life, which is more like, you know, there's 12 of us and we all do the same thing and we all eat the same thing and we all live the same way. Um, and that kind of discipline and that kind of, um, way of living really helped a lot of kids because they had 11 other people who they were sort of quasi accountable for. And the, you know, the saying in the house I ran was the hand of one is the hand of all. And so, you know, really saying like, you've all got to kind of pull through things together. And, you know, I can remember the girls. So I, I was over the low management program. There's a boy cottage and girls cottage. And I mostly worked with the boys and somebody else case managed the girls. And the girls had this habit of bleaching each other's clothing, which would cost me money. Because <laughs> I'd have Sounds to replace like them. girls for sure. Totally. And, and by DHEC regulation, by the Department of Health and Environmental Control, we had to give them a clothes basket. So they have these little plastic ba- uh, hampers to put their dirty clothes in. And so what the trick was, was to go and like swirl the bleach onto the clothing and then like hide it, you know, and nobody would know that you'd done it until they went to wash their clothes. So we were on like a spree of this. And I went to my boss and I said, um, here's the deal. I'm going to basically say that if anybody else's clothes get bleached between now and a certain date, that everybody's clothes are getting bleached. Guess what? Somebody's clothes got bleached. So you know what I did while they were all like out for the day, went and poured bleach in everybody's clothing hamper. And I said, and we're all, and I went home and bleached some of my own clothes and we all wore them out together. Like one big happy family and our very not well tie dyed clothing. (laughs) It sounds almost like a very well put together drill sergeant mentality. Well, I mean, you know, my tactics weren't working, so I had to try something else. All right. I feel you. Yeah. That's those days when my tactics don't work at all. Who knew bleach was the answer? Hey, don't well, no, of course, a lot of people are like, why do kids in group homes have bleach? Well, these were your lower management, you know, less high risk kids. And so bleach and laundry detergent were normal. They were normal for them to have access to. So for them to learn how to use. Correct. I mean, I would get kids that didn't know how to work a thermostat. Yeah. Didn't know how to wash clothes, didn't know how to fold clothes, didn't know how to do much of anything. Um, and then the, one of the biggest battles I would fight is they had this like awful prison looking furniture. It was like wooden plank furniture and the kids would always write and draw all over it. And you know, my supervisors would be like the graffiti on these beds. And I'm like, nobody killed anybody. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, everybody ate success. last night. Uh, nobody's suspended from school. I don't care if they're right on the bed. <laughs> Right? They might have went to school in tie-dyed clothes, but <laughs> <laughs> I'm just picking my battles, you know. So, but again, I wouldn't trade those days for the world. Those days working in that group home prepared me for the rest of my life, the rest of my career. I feel like I owe something to every young person who I was fortunate enough to be able to serve. And you know, thank you for what you are doing um, here on the podcast and here with all the kids that are in your house now and have come through your home um, just takes one adult. And so I hope people will be that one adult. That's the biggest part of our mission with this is to bring as many people into becoming 
that person to make that change because, I mean, what, how many of our kids have said something about becoming foster parents themselves later on? At least two, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so if out of our house, only two kids, only two kids choose to become a foster family in the future, we just like triple the number of kids that, that we can reach. And so on and so forth. And God knows we're not done yet um, because we got plenty of little ones that aren't even old enough to think about that as a future thing yet. But (laughs) but it's 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 our our legacy to leave in the world. You know, the change that we can make 100 years from today. The world will be different if you because you lived in it. Now, if that's going to be a wonderful legacy that, that means you helped a lot of people and did amazing things, that's awesome. But if your legacy it's going to be, you know, that you were really good at going home after work, getting drunk, beating your wife and children and animals and, and you know, all all the other things. If, if addiction is your legacy, that's going to change the world as well. And we have the, we have the ability to shape that, that, cha- that legacy, what it's going to look like. No matter what it is, you're going to change the world. You just have to decide what that's going to be. Yeah. And it sounds to me like, you know, from – from eight-year-old little Jimmy all the way up, you, you have been one of those people who's been really able to connect with a lot of kids and make that difference in lives because for whatever it is that they see in you, they connect with you. you you've you made choices that allowed you to connect with young kids who need somebody. And, you know, I just want to say that out loud because not everybody in a group home or any government job gets told that and told that, you know, that that's some of the amazing stuff. And I just want to thank you so much for coming in here and telling some of your story around this stuff. Um, and, and we look forward to maybe potentially possibly hearing you tell some more stories about your life coming up in the next, um, let's see when this comes out, if you're listening to this now, when it first comes out, you only got a couple of weeks left until you need to get onto a Apple podcast or if you're, the Android guy like me, you know, there's there's about a million other podcast apps that you can look up. Look for 126 Days, Stories of Life and Work. And hear part of Shannon's story because she's got a podcast getting ready to go live here in a couple of weeks that we need to listen to. Because it sounds <laughs> like you've had quite the interesting world and life and experience. And for you to hear you interview some other people and talk with these things, you've got a, you've got a legacy. I'm just going to let you yes. know you're leaving a yeah, wide I- legacy. I can't wait for the podcast to come out. Um, 126 days stories on life and work is, is just that it's stories of how life and work uh, intermingle. Um, sometimes life changes your work and sometimes work changes your life. And for me, it's been that, that my work has impacted and changed my life over and over and over again. Um, and so it's a platform for other people to be able to tell that story too. Awesome. I'm excited to hear it. So, but thank you for, for taking some time out of your day and coming to tell stories on here about these kids that have impacted your life so much and made such a difference in the world. We really just want to make certain that, that people understand how important it is when you have stories like this to tell it to other people so mm-hmm. that maybe, just maybe, we can help encourage a few others to join us in the struggles. Yep. Thank you so much. I appreciate the opportunity. Okay, Foster Care Nation. Thank you for listening to Shannon's story. Now take her knowledge and wisdom to heart so you can create love and healing in your family and community. Be sure to come back next week. We have new episodes every Tuesday. If you'd like to share your story as a guest, you can reach us at jason at fostercarenation.com. 
You can connect with other like-minded people on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash foster care UJ. And don't forget, we have a Patreon account where you can support our mission for as little as $5 a month. It's at patreon.com slash foster care nation. The links to everything are in the show notes below in your podcast player or at fostercarenation.com. And as always, you are so super awesome. I thank you guys. Thank you for listening. Thanks, thanks, thanks. Unparalleled Studios. Studios.